0: this morning um, is going to be um, our last week before we enter into a study in the book of Philippians and um, sort of a change of pace, although we've been in the Psalms a little bit. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at some of the uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's a book that is, um, as I mentioned in Sunday school, that can often be overlooked, um, but it's one that really highlights some of the, the human thought, the human condition of um, the very real things that we as people can struggle with and in thinking about. Um, and John, this battery's dead, so I'll just stay up here. Um, so we're, our text this morning is going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, looking upon the crowd, some of you are excited and love it. Some of you are like, what in the world is that book? Um, I'm excited because it's something um, we're going to move through all 18 verses here of the first chapter, Um, not going into crazy detail on each and every one. Um, But if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon is the author here. He opens up in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Um, If you're not familiar with where the book of Ecclesiastes is, it's going to be right after uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, But here we have Solomon as the author And I'm just going to read all the way throughout our text, and then we'll dive into it a little bit. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath already been of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of the Spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief,
1: and he that increaseth knowledge
0: increaseth sorrow. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for being infinitely wise and being so gracious and allowing us to to know that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom as we look through this chapter here briefly this morning. I pray that as we see your word that we would understand what it is that you are to communicate. We, we ask that by your spirit you would illuminate the words that are found here in this text. And God, I pray that we would be able to to actively listen to what is being taught, to interact with what is being seen here as we understand ourselves, but we understand the hope that we have in you. We ask that you continue to guide us as we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now if we're familiar with Solomon, it's no surprise that he would be writing so much about himself as well as so much about wisdom. He he kind of gives a brief bit of a resume here. He makes it clear that he was a king. It's clear that he was a king over Israel and he had all that could ever be dreamt of, right? We understand the story of Solomon. We know that he had incredible amounts of money. He was not lacking in paying the utility bills. He was not lacking when it came to wisdom. There is so much that is going on here. And as we read through these words, even the first three verses, uh, we we find upon verse 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He even begins with what it is that he is concluding. Uh, This would have been very common amongst the literary form here of beginning with the most important things and putting it at the top to emphasize it. Um, Here, when he's saying vanity of vanities, this is to emphasize it. The repetition here is the same reason that we would say king of kings, lord of lords. It's to make a stronger emphasis on it. And here, um, many of you may have um, heard some of these familiar phrases that are even found in this text and say, well, I know that phrase, but I never really knew where it came from. Uh, And often, often, Ecclesiastes seems to be quoted without a reference to understanding where it is. But he places the most important things here at the top of the opening to emphasize its great importance. Similar, uh, kind of the conclusion being at the beginning is very odd for us, but if you've ever watched any of the, the police shows or crime shows, how many of you enjoy crime dramas or those kind of things? I'm super, not nearly as many of you, or those of you just don't like to raise your hands. Okay? Okay. Um, it's okay too, I promise. right. But if you're familiar with them, a lot of them, especially my favorites like The Law and Order, um, Monk being one of my favorite shows ever, right? It always they tend to start off with who did it or at least exactly what happened, right? It's going to show you what happened and everything else is going to lead up into like that actual conclusion, right? So you get intro and conclusion right at the beginning. and then the rest is going to be the outworking. Of these things. Um, if you're like me, whenever you see that, you try to figure out, especially when you don't know who did it, you just see what happened. You're sitting here going, all right, I'm going to figure out everything else from here on out. And also, if you're like me, you're probably wrong at times. Okay? And then I blame the writing of the show, not myself. But often, this is what is happening in this form of literature. He's bringing it up to the top, saying, Vanity of vanity saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? Here in verse 2, there's an understanding of vanity. Um, tons of different definitions that we can have here. Some translations have it as meaningless. Um, essentially, the word here is bringing forth the understanding of it is a vapor. It is futile, right? This futile thing. What good is all of these things? What profit does a man have? if all of his labor that he takes is under the sun. what What's the point here? We see a, a person wrestling with his own humanity, with, with this understanding of the world, and saying, I've had it all, and all things are meaningless. Now, before we get too far, I want us to understand that this is not going to absolutely be the full conclusion. It is certainly not the biblical conclusion upon the end. But here he is encapsulating the point that he is going to engage in. Now, I know that many of us who engage in any kind of philosophy or we like to read upon it, we see these thinkers of the 20th century, um, maybe some that were very aggressive in the late 19th century, and say, wow, these are great minds of their time, and they seek to uh, show themselves to be innovators, coming up with new thoughts. Um, Guys like Nietzsche, Sartre, Bertrand Russell, even um, authors like Hemingway, all these different people, they come around, And it's like, wow, look at this great pillar of human wisdom. This is an incredibly new idea that life is meaningless. Where thousands of years before, this has already been written in the book of Ecclesiastes, not the only place, but this thought that people would engage in of saying, well, life essentially is meaningless anyways, so what profit does a man have in doing anything? Now, as we see this, I want us to keep in mind the whole of the Bible, the whole of Scripture, this is not the point to come away with, see, the Bible says that all things are meaningless, so I guess all things are meaningless. right? We have to understand what it is that's being portrayed here. But if you're also familiar with a popular thought now, so much of what is taught is that, hey, there's not really a true purpose for you in life, it's just to do what's best for you, it's self-indulgence, right? Um, if there is no God, which many would say that there is not, then live your best life now as you can. Do everything that you can for yourself. Every single thing to drive to that end. It's the understanding that you have these human instincts of survival, so just go full into it. The same way that the animals would pursue things just for themselves. Their God is their belly, right? This kind of an understanding, which again, the whole of the Old Testament, we see these things being played out. This understanding here in verse 3, what profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun, this under the sun is implying that if this is all that life is, those things which are under the sun, the temporal things, this earth that we have, the, the life that we live now, if this is all that there is, then what point is there? This is a place that even some of you may have come to Previously, you may even be in that position now as circumstances have come up and said, hey, if this is all that there really is, then life must just be meaningless. Why am I going to do anything? What well, What's the point in continuing on? Because maybe this is all that there is, so I'm not going to deal with the stress and work within the family, within the home, within interpersonal relationships. If all is meaningless, why wouldn't I just do everything for myself right now? Here he's laying out Human condition, he's laying out human thought. If this is all that there is under the sun, then what profit is there in all of our labor? Again, he's, en- he's emphasizing vanity of vanity, saying that these things are meaningless if this is all that there is. And Solomon here is asking the question, is there life before death? Now that sounds kind of silly initially, Course, there's life before death. You're not going to have, you can't die if you were never once alive, right? We understand that. But is there truly meaningful life to be lived before we die? We understand the state of humanity. We understand that we are not going to just live forever here on this earth. I think we've covered that ground pretty well, and I think we've been around long enough to know this. He's asking, is there meaning? Is there true life? Before death. And he's going to continue on. He's going to describe the life that is purely under the sun. Verses 4 through 7, he says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, they return again. He's continuing. We see all these things. The rising of the sun. Does the sun rise every morning? Yes or no? Yes, Ryan. Amen to Ryan. Hallelujah right there, right? So Ryan understands the sun rises every day, right? Imagine, we know scientifically and realistically what would happen if the sun just didn't come up. But does the sun have the option of just not coming up one day? The sun doesn't just say, you know, God, I understand uh, why I'm here, and I understand that you have made me to do these things, but I am choosing to no longer rise. The sun doesn't do that, I don't think. I think I can confidently say that the sun doesn't do that. And it sets the same each and every day. We see the sun rising, the sun setting, wind south and north, returning again to where it came, rivers, all these different things. Life is repetitive, is it not? This is something that he's explaining. He's going on these monotonous things in life of saying, so what purpose is there? Now he's describing creation. Look, the sun comes up the same every day as it does go down. The wind, it comes through. Um, we feel like we're just chasing the wind sometimes with the monotony and the routine of life that we go through. And here he's wrestling with this understanding of, so what point is there? Is life all meaningless? Those who chase after the wind, let me know when you actually get it. Right? It doesn't happen. Chasing after the wind, it's a never-ending pursuit of these things. But this is the condition of so many who have no understanding that God has created all things and that there is the existence of a God, the one who comes into the world and says, hey, we are accidents, we were just here. Again, as we discussed in the Sunday school, we were just, boom, everything, nothing exploded. We were created. There's no meaning, no purpose, no reason for anything that we do. Then the logical question would be, so is there a meaning? Because if there is no creator, if there is no purpose that we have been given, then sure, enjoy yourself for the time but here as he's explaining it those things that are under the sun those things that are temporal those things that are earthly and here we see life is repetitive some of you go to work the exact same time every single day you travel the exact same way the only variety you have in your work is um, making a couple different turns taking a back way every now and then just to mix up your routine life can be very very monotonous right I don't, I don't think I'm just speaking to a bunch of people that have incredibly um, wild lifestyles. Life can get very, very repetitive and mundane at times. And we can sit and go, man, every day I show up to work at 8.05, I'm always five minutes late. Okay, now I understand. That's the audience there. Right, you get there a few minutes late, this person always comes in even later, this happens at work, um, this coffee is the same, the snack, every single thing. You can plot out your day. You leave the same time every day. You travel home the exact same time, and nothing has changed. And you go to bed saying, Hey, I can't wait to do it again tomorrow. Now, some of you would say, Man, if I didn't have such a routine, I would go crazy.
1: Some of you love
0: the routine. Some of you absolutely don't. The same thing can happen with meals. After that, Perfectly planned out routine of the day. You know Monday is the day for lasagna. Tuesday, it's taco day, right? Wednesdays, it's walking tacos, right? Thursdays, and you can plan out every single thing, and it's the exact same thing each and every day. What happens with humanity when things are absolutely the same, routine day after day after day, not a single subtle bit of change? We do not do well with that. We do for a time, but it wears on us because we like different. We like new. We like those things. And here he's explaining so much of this condition that, look, these things continue. They go on and on. It's the same. It doesn't change. It's routine. They persist in all of this. Then he continues on. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear. Filled with hearing. The eye, after seeing something so many times, begins to lose any kind of awe or any kind of wonder for it. Why? Well, I've seen that before. I mean, some things that are absolutely incredible, just shy of a miracle, we can grow very, very complacent in seeing. You, you hear of a person who, who has come to salvation in Christ, and we go, wow, and we move on as if something tremendous did not take place there. We hear of a child who has been born and the absolute just awe of childbirth and just go, yeah, of course they were born. Not realizing the incredible grace and the the beauty of all that that is and just short of a miracle that even childbirth would be. Again, we live in an area where we have all these mountains. We see, look upon all that we can have. We see the sky so much better. We see so many different things. We're not, um, it's not Flint, Michigan, Okay. Right? You have beautiful things to look at, and you can look, and you can just go, yeah, that's a mountain, as if it's not a significant thing that God has created for us to be able to glorify Him for. Move it a little bit closer to home and even personalize it some. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Think about the relationships that you have. You see someone constantly, day in, day out. Your children, your spouse, your co-workers, your best friends. You say, well, yeah, they're just, you know, my spouse. They're just my friend. They're whoever. You see them each and every day and you can grow complacent in those things if you're not careful to guard yourself. But yet the minute any of these things are removed, all of a sudden we say, oh, wait. I remember how beautiful and how wonderful those things were. If only my eye was not satisfied with seeing At that time where my ear would have been satisfied with hearing. We hear the truth of the gospel over and over again. And we say, "All right, we've heard this before. I know that Jesus is the Son of God that has died on the cross to atone for my sins. I get it. As if that's not a tremendous truth to know each and every day. One that we should be satisfied with hearing. It should always be, keep going. Don't stop. That's the, the reason that it is that we live. That's why... What he's saying in verse 2 and 3 does not hold up. It's not true that there is no meaning in anything. He's making this point, though, that if there is nothing else, then of course it's all meaningless. But what do we know to be true? There is something else. There is actual meaning to life. There is all of those things that we know to be true. In verse 9, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. We're very familiar with the closing of verse 9, aren't we? There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, but the pride of the person who says, Guys, I came up with this really neat idea. It's super new. No one has ever thought of it before. And we begin to say, Wow, that person is incredibly creative. That must be new. Nothing new under the sun. Is there anything, verse 10, whereof it may be said, See, this is new, it, authority, it hath been already of old time, which was before us. Now keep in mind when this was written. Thousands of years ago, There are, he is already making it clear. There is nothing new under the sun at this point. Now let's look at the year 2018. Is there anything new? No. Even the, com- the conversations that we have now of, wow, there's so much war in the world. That's not new been going on forever. That's what people do best, right? We fight, we bicker, we try to take over things. That's what people do. We look at the, si- the situations of gender identity and sexuality. Is that a new controversy that people are having to engage in? New discussions that has never ever happened? Absolutely not. These conversations that we have, they are not new. And then in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. How often do we say, hey, do you remember the, uh, that guy, the, um, that one guy with the face and the hair and the, like the, you know, died 20 years ago, and we can't even remember who people are, right? Think about how many people have lived in history and how many you can actually name. And it's not always for great reasons, how quickly we forget that once we are gone, we will quickly fade from the memory of those that come after us. Which yet again should make us incredibly thankful for the preservation of the Word of God that we see so much day in and day out. We can look through history and see the Christ. We can see the the things that have taken place, the people who have done these things, not because we want to say, wow, I'm so thankful I can see Paul's great work or I can see the great works of the disciples, but to say, wow, look at how God used these people for his purpose and for his own glory. Verse 12, again, he says, I, I the preacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Again, so this is not a person who has nothing, who is saying, if this is all that there is, things are meaningless. This is a person who we would look at in Solomon and say, wow, he has everything. What could ever trouble that person? People constantly look at athletes and those in any position of power and say, wow, look at how wonderful their life must be. They're never worried about money, food. They have people looking up to them all the time, all this fortune, all this fame, all this power. Their life must be wonderful. But we know otherwise, don't we? We know that that's not always the case. It says he gave his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. And he talks about this incredible burden that God has given to the sons of man to be exercised with. This is a person who has had everything that you could ever dream of, materially, temporally. He had so much to be thankful for. And even at the end of all of this, he is saying, what is the point then? What is the point of all of these things? I read that if you have a roof over your head and a meal, you are richer than 93% of the world. That is absolutely stunning and even more so humbling.
1: Richer than over 90% of all the people in the world
0: because you have a roof over your head and because you have a meal to eat. That is tremendous. But yet, what nation perhaps is one of the biggest group of complainers in the entire world. It's it's us, right? And it's not just kids, by the way. It's everybody. We all do it. Why? Because what do we see in verse 8? The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. We're not satisfied because we think that whatever we have, we earned it, we deserve it, and that's the way it should be, and that becomes our starting point. Once we get used to it, That's our starting point. We're back at zero as opposed to always being thankful for those things. Are you thankful that you have a place to live, to call home, a roof over your head? Regardless of the size of the roof or how much room is under it, having one, having any food to eat, richer than 90% of the world. That should be something that brings incredible thanks each and every day that we experience it. And we're moving very, very quickly. And I understand that. Verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Again, as he continues to write in these things, he's saying, I have seen everything that people have done. I have seen all things that can be done under the sun here in this time, here in this earth. If this is all, then it is absolutely meaningless. It is a vapor. It is going to pass. Now, a simple application here, because we understand the whole of Scripture is, this is why we do not place all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our efforts in those things under the sun. Our main goal in life should not be to have the best job that we could possibly have. To attain a particular status or position in our city, in our state. It shouldn't be for all of these different temporal things, because you know some of you guys have probably seen pictures on Facebook of, Um, both people, they're alive. One person's poor, one person's rich, has all of these things. And then the next little picture says death and there's just two graves, right? The things that you take with you. What do we take with us? Absolutely nothing that we've gained here. We're not going to take our cars. We're not going to take our house. We're not going to take our job. Some of you are praising the Lord for that, right? When you die, you're like, yes, my job also will stay behind. But these are such incredible truths that once again, being reminded of these things. That which is crooked, verse 15, cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Here he's saying, look, it's crooked, it can't be fixed, it's not going to get straightened out if this is all that there is. If this is all that there is in the world, then these things cannot be fixed. It's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube with blocks missing. How many of you have ever tried to do that? You're missing a blue and a yellow. Good luck. Right? I can't even do a Rubik's Cube normally, so that would really stress me out. But it's so clear as he's writing this, he we we see a sense of the humanity of the thoughts that many of us have even wrestled with at times. He communes with his own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So, what then does a person have who accrues all the wisdom in the world, all of the things that could be had in the world, but yet sits back and questions, is this all that there is? Because so often we say, man, if I was only, going back to the jokes earlier, if I was only taller, right? Or if I was only better looking, or man, if only God had made me a better singer, or if God had only given me this house, this, this family, this situation, this job, all of these different things, and say, man, if only God had done this, that would have been enough. This is a man who had everything and is asking the question, I have had everything. If this is all that there is, then it is all meaningless. But yet, what percentage of our week are we pursuing those things which are meaningless? What percentage of our week are we saying, God, I'm, I'm going to, this stuff has to happen. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to eat. Eating is a good thing. Work is a good thing. I'm going to do those things so that I can know you more. Not to accrue more things, not to accrue a better job status, a better bank account, better savings, all of these different things. But how am I going to use what you have given me to know you more, to make you better known. Solomon had everything, everything we could possibly have. We, was people we know, friends, family, even ourselves at times. We constantly pursue what we think is going to be the best thing for us, which is usually what? More, right? It, it's the man who has has millions of dollars and is asked how much will be enough and responds with, just one more dollar. I just need one more. That may not do it for you. What about cake? Okay. How much cake is going to be enough? Just one more piece. Just one more. Because that is what our condition says. That we need more. We're not satisfied that we've had half the cake already. Just one more. One more piece. He's vexed by these things even in his soul because he understands that, man, if this is all that there is, this is absolutely depressing. It's absolutely meaningless. So many people, not just in the world, but in our valley, have this understanding that this is all that there is. All these things are meaningless. So I am going to seek to dominate the other person so that I can have as much for myself as possible. You'll see this at work. You'll see this just walking around. You'll see this if we take time to talk to other people. This comes out so much. And so what is our response to them? Is it, yeah, everything is meaningless? Or is it, well, I think there's meaning in life, and then we just casually drift away? Or do you then take the time and being able to stand boldly and courageously and to be able to explain that only in Christ will those things be satisfied? Every person who has ever lived has wrestled with the questions of identity, of who am I, why am I here, what is my purpose? These are universal questions that a person has in their life. How they are answered is going to determine whether heaven or hell, whether saved or not, right? If I believe that I am just created from nothing, just explosions of things that go on, if I'm stardust, if I'm goo, if I'm a rock, whatever the trendy thing is now that keeps changing, What worth do I feel I have? What purpose do I have in these things? None. But if you believe that you are made in the image of God, the one who has made all things, the one who has not only made you, but saw you in your sin and redeemed you by the blood of his Son, now there is hope. Now there is value. Now there is purpose. And what then is your purpose? To serve him. To love him. To make him known. And it's also important to understand that you serve God by serving others as well. This is not the monastic life of the monk who withdraws and says, I'm going to know God the best that I possibly can, so I'm going to go sit under a tree. I'm going to avoid all people, and I'm just going to pray the rest of my life. He's called us to be in community with each other. And so to close here, we see him wrestling with all of these things. He had all of it, wasn't satisfied. There has to be something more. We understand that the more is all in Christ every single time. Only in Him are our desires going to be satisfied. Flip over to close at Second Corinthians chapter 11. Here we see one of the biggest struggles that man has, one of the biggest struggles that Christians can deal with at times. And here we see Paul writing about it. The understanding of being content. Not just when we want to be, or not just when we think we have enough, but knowing that we do have enough. Whether we think so or not. We have enough. Here Paul is writing 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons Far more frequent in deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. This sounds absolutely horrible, does it not? In so many different forms of peril, so many different things that have befallen him. He says in 28, Besides those those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak, who is offended, and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aristus, the king, kept the city of Damascus with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. Here he's laid out all of these different things that he has suffered for the glory of Christ and says, even amidst all of these things, he is content. He is content, and yet look at this list of absolutely horrific things. He finds himself being content because he knows in who it is that he has believed in. He knows that God is bringing about something tremendous as he continues to work itself out through his own suffering. Not just of himself, but by heathen, city, wilderness, the sea, false brethren, robbers. He is content because he knows that he has enough. He knows that he has Christ, all the other desires, all the things that he desires of comfort, which tends to be our focus. Doesn't matter. You can have all of those things, yet without God, that's more perilous than, than the lack of a home, the lack of food, the lack of anything else. It's tremendous to see the incredible faith of those who have so very little because they're tremendously content with what it is that they have that doesn't come apart from God, that there's no contentment apart from God because you can accrue all the status, all the fame, all the fortune you can ever have, but apart from trusting in God, everything that you've accrued is meaningless. And these are the things that we are to remind ourselves with and, and remind ourselves with far more than for 40, 45 minutes once every week of 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 a casual reminder of these biblical truths and understanding, we know that life is not meaningless. We, We are thankful to God for it. We know that we have hope. We know that we trust upon Him. We know that He is working all things for the good of those who love Him. We know what it is that He is doing because He has revealed it to us. He is bringing glory to Himself. Does that mean that you may suffer in order for that to happen? Absolutely. Does it mean that things could go very, very well for you? Very possibly. But I'm also not going to say everything is going to be incredibly prosperous, and God so desires your great comfort that you will never struggle in business, never struggle with bills, never struggle in any situation. But here as we see Solomon putting these things, those are not the things that brought him any joy. He is left vexed by these things. This is a very uncomfortable position. There is no safety, no security in material things. Again, we look at the words of Jesus, the man who has all these treasures and sees a pearl in the field and gets rid of it and sells all that he has just so he can have the pearl. You get rid of all that you would have for Christ. That's redemption. It is forsaking all else for the prize who is Christ. Here, he had all these things. It wasn't enough. Why? Because that does not sustain a person. That does not bring peace. That's why in so many of these greetings, and we're going to see this in Philippians, "Grace and peace unto you." You have to understand grace first, because without grace, there is no peace. And that's the truth that we that we see. And I understand um, Ecclesiastes is not necessarily a uh, go-get'em kind of a text, right? Um, not all of them are going to be spurring a person on to say, man, I'm going to go just serve the Lord. I feel super empowered. But the encouragement is that life is not meaningless, and there are so many who do believe that to be true, who believe that their only goal in life is to succeed for themselves, to bring themselves glory, to bring themselves honor. So what then does the Christian do? What does the Christian called to do knowing that this is the situation that so many find themselves. So many find themselves troubled. So many find themselves without God. The Christian carries the message of hope, of truth, of redemption, of atonement for sins, of safety and security and refuge in God. What is our mission with that message? It's not to hold it for ourselves, to hoard. There's nothing um, hoarding about the Christian faith. It's a missionary faith. It's one meant to be shared.
1: And so understanding
0: this human condition, you guys all know where we live in this valley. We're all presently aware of the common thoughts, things that are in schools. We understand the culture now. Christians standing up and bringing forth the message that there actually is a meaning in life, that there is a purpose, and it's more than just getting your name tattooed on the side of a building or finding some political office or some sort of, uh, television show where you can show your wonderful talents. It's to know God, to make him known, to serve others in serving God, to love him, to love others. So many of these things. And as Christians, we can stand and make that message known. I know the phrase of, um, and some of us have talked about it in the past, of in sharing the gospel, um, you know, I'm going to live my life and people will just see the way that I live and they will know that the, they will know the gospel by the way that I live. I certainly hope so. It's a great, great beginning. But there will be times where we have to use words. Often I know we're hesitant to speak, but trust the Spirit. Trust that the Lord is going to bring that person to where he desires to bring them. Our work is to plant the seed. He continues to do the rest, and I promise he is far better at accomplishing that purpose than we are. Some of us say, well, I struggle over words and um, you know, I'm not going to be a gifted speaker. I'm not going to know how to speak clearly and I'm going to uh, babble a lot and I'm going to uh, stutter a lot. That's great. You stutter your way through the gospel. Praise God for it. Even the best speakers stumble. But you know you're going to get better at it the more you do it. And I think these are truths that a lot of us know and we wrestle with inside. But be encouraged that the same God who has created all things and who made your mouth is the one who is going to give you the words to make him known. And that's an incredible assurance that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that your word brings the the plain understanding of the things that you have done throughout time and throughout history that have shown yourself to us. We acknowledge the flesh that we have that seeks to ignore you at times or to deny that you are all that you say you are and that you do all that you say you do. And as we look through this chapter of Ecclesiastes and seeing human condition, human thoughts of wrestling with if this is all that there is, then what is the point? We see in Ephesians 2 the the human condition that we're all born into and that in a time past that we too were once this way, but God. But you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. You have, you have called us out of death and into your marvelous light. You are the one who has brought eternal life to your people. You have brought salvation and redemption. And we understand the incredible beauty and the incredible glory of that. God, as we see the the world that surrounds us now that you have placed us into, the the time in which we live, we... Are in a time of much debate surrounding those things that are true, whether or not God does exist, and if so, what is his purpose? What is his plan for us? If we are created in his image, what does that mean? And what are we to do? And how so are we then to live? God, these are questions that each and every person wrestles with. Every person seeks to have an understanding of of value of fulfillment of seeking to achieve a purpose of having some sense of worth and i pray that the churches here in this area that our church and others would be willing to to go out and to be able to to speak you to speak that purpose these are questions that that not a single person has ever neglected to ask even in a moment of of being in private everyone wonders who are they why am i here and what am I to do? There are countless stories of people who have wrestled with so many of these thoughts, and, and a Christian comes up and engages them in conversation and is absolutely stunned that that this situation has occurred that a Christian has sought to to share the gospel, to show you to them, saying, that's all I've been thinking about for weeks now. God, I pray that as a church we would be missional and intentional in in sharing you and sharing the truth of who you are with those that, that are perplexed, that are without you, that need to understand what it is that they have been created to do and that's to honor you. They have been created in your image for your glory that they would Come to a saving faith in you. God, I thank you that you have given our lives meaning. We thank you that you've given us the, the most humbling and yet the most satisfying mission and, and all that is possible, which is to praise you and to glorify you. God, we thank you for being a, a good father, a good master, a, a perfect father, and a perfect master, one who is the only one worthy of serving. And that we forsake all All else in a pursuit of you. Ask that you continue to lead us even as we go. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.